Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sentenced. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Kara. And today we're bringing you a true crime podcast, so we're definitely going to be focusing on true crime cases. However, it's going to be more so ones that you probably haven't heard of before and ones that have been sentenced. So no murder mysteries here, folks. So sorry about it. Um, Just to get into this, I wanted to give brief introductions to ourselves. Uh, My name is Caitlin. I am 28 years old and I live in California and I've had an interest in true crime probably since I saw Forensic Files on TV when I was like three. (laughs) And my name is Kara. I am 30 something and (laughs) I live in Nevada um, I think I've always been interested in true crime just by probably Dateline was my first real exposure to true crime. So I'm super stoked to be here and I'm ready to get started. All right. So we're just going to dive right into it today. Um, we don't really have any updates for anything because this is our first episode. So today we are talking about Brian Dwayne Brookins out of Millage. Milledgeville, Georgia. Um, So yeah, we're just going to get right into it. Suzanne McDade Brookins was born May 23, 1961, and worked at Vernet Manufacturing in Milledgeville, Georgia. She was the devoted, loving mother of two children, Samantha and Dalton Giles. Samantha Ray Giles, better known as Sam, was born September 4, 1990. Sam was a vibrant 15-year-old that enjoyed McDonald's french fries, which... Same. Same. (laughs) And was in the 8th grade at Oak Hill Middle School. Um, from what I could find, she was a cheerleader, um, can't relate, wish I was, I definitely <laughs> tried, tried out once, uh, it didn't really work out. That's a missed opportunity. <laughs> I know. Um, so Suzanne married Brian Dwayne Brookins in the year 2000. Brookins was born in 1971 and seemingly lived a normal childhood. Brookins' mother, Vicky would later state that Brookins was a whole boy that liked to ride bikes and jump hills, but would sometimes show his aggressive side. Vicky would also testify that she was happy that her son and Suzanne were together because Suzanne leveled him and made him take his medication. Oh. I I couldn't find what medication she was referring to. Um, it, it There's not a lot about this case, to be honest, so it wasn't really clear. Um, However, their five-year marriage quickly soured as Brookins was consistently in and out of jail. Okay. On on September 14th, 2005, Brookins was arrested for stealing quads or four-wheelers. While he was in jail, he told a fellow inmate, Richard Jackson, that he would kill that snitching bitch, referring to his wife, Suzanne. Jackson testified that Brookins made this comment more as a statement of fact Later, he then told another inmate, Brian Edenfield, when I get out, I'm going to kill that snitching bitch. So he was definitely going around jail just telling everybody that he was going to kill his wife for snitching. While he was still married? Like, while they were still married? Yes. So he was just (laughs) in jail. 
Yeah, just going off about her not living the dream. Defense attorney Dennis Francis questioned the men and asked them if they got a sweet deal for their testimony, but they stated that they did not. While Brookins was in jail, he also reportedly called Suzanne and accused her of reporting him to the police for stealing the quads. And on October 5th, so just like 21 days later, Brookins was released on bond with the condition that he would have no contact with Suzanne his wife. So they were still married during this whole time. So, so he goes to jail for stealing four-wheelers. Yes. And then while they're married and then says that he's going to kill her and then he gets released and then essentially they're separated. Correct. So after his release from jail, Brookins reportedly asked a former inmate's girlfriend if he could purchase her 38 caliber revolver. According to court documents, the girlfriend initially resisted but did eventually agree to sell him the revolver. So, now we have a newly released inmate with a gun, literally days after getting out of jail. Oh, fantastic. Pretty sure that's illegal, but whatever. Um, After Brookins' release, Suzanne and her children stayed with her parents for their safety. While she was staying at her mother's house, Suzanne would periodically check in on her home. During one of her checks, she found that her bedside shotgun had been taken and reported it to detectives. On another day, she went to the home and found that her DVD player, TV, and a video game had been taken from the home, which she reported to detectives as well. Despite all of these instances, Suzanne and Sam would return to living in the home. It's unclear if her son Dalton was ever living in the home at the time. So, this is just... So, like, the mom and the daughter moved back into the house? Yes, correct. Okay. Like, this guy's only been out for, like, seven days, and they're already back living in the home. So, and he clearly went to jail because she called the police about him stealing four-wheelers. So, it wasn't a great situation, but I'm sure she just wanted to get out of living with her parents and felt secure enough going back to her home. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's only been seven days at this point. Oh, my God. So, on October 12th, a neighbor of Suzanne's saw her pull into the driveway of her home. While she exited her vehicle, Brookins came out of the home. He's not supposed to be there. And Suzanne began telling him to leave, and he wasn't allowed to be there. Suzanne retreated to her vehicle and left the home. So, she comes home seven days after him getting out of jail, and he's there. And he's not supposed to have any contact with her. And he's just at the home. She tells him to leave. He doesn't leave. So she leaves. Uh, Suzanne would later reach out to her neighbors and advise them that Brookins was not allowed to be there and to call the sheriff's department if they ever saw him at the home. On the morning of October 14th, a neighbor that lives a few houses down from Suzanne saw Brookins driving past the house multiple times without stopping. Around 12 p.m. that day, the same neighbor that saw the initial interaction between the couple where Suzanne pulls up and then mm-hmm. he's coming out of the home. Uh, so, but she's still going back to this house? Yes. I know. Not a great situation, but I'm sure she didn't have very many options, unfortunately. Right. Um, so just two days after that, the same neighbor saw Brookin standing on the front porch. That neighbor called the sheriff's department, but Brookin saw her observing him So, after seeing her, he left the porch and went around to the back of the house. 
The neighbor waited for the sheriff's departments to arrive. Once they confirmed that they were there, they the neighbor ended up leaving the home, their home. I think they went to go run errands or something. Mm-hmm. Between the hours of 1 and 3 p.m. on October 14th, so this same day, so after this instance, he was seen driving past the house, and then he went into a local pawn shop and asked if they had any rifles for hunting deer. What? Yes. The shop teller... He had the audacity while he's on parole, fresh out of the slammer, to go into a pawn shop and ask for a gun. Correct. Okay, cool. Not just a gun, like for rifles, for hunting deer. The shop teller told him that they didn't have any rifles in stock, so Brookins left the store. Roughly around 2 p.m., the same neighbor that had seen Brookins at the home around 12 came home from their errands and again saw Brookins, but this time he was standing towards the back of the house. It is not reported if the resident called the sheriff's department at this time, but later the neighbor was looking out their window and saw Suzanne and Sam arrive home. Reminder, this is all the same day, October 14th. Shortly after they arrived, the neighbor reported hearing two groupings of gunshots. Oh my god. Shortly before this incident, another man, Kirk Patrick Mosley, was visiting his mother's home, was on the phone in his backyard, and saw Suzanne and Sam drive down the street. They waved to him and pulled into the driveway. Shortly after pulling into the driveway and getting to the back of the house... So I I couldn't find the house online because the address Mm -hmm. isn't listed. But what it sounds like is they have one of those, like, U-shaped driveways. But then you could also drive to the back of the house as well. So it's either all cement or dirt. Okay. So from what it sounded like is when Suzanne normally got home, she would pull in and pull to the back of the house. But in this situation, she pulls to the back, reverses her car, and actually pulls up to the front of the house. So this is significantly different, and this guy who is visiting his mom knows this well enough to mentally make a note of this. So, right, to, like, strike it as weird as, or... Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. So Kirkpatrick said that this was strange because he has never seen her park at the front of her house before. He moved closer to get a better vantage point on what was going on. Kirkpatrick saw Brookins come around the house carrying a pistol, screaming at Suzanne, you motherfucking bitch. He would later testify that he saw Brookins raise his gun and Suzelle yelled to him, Pat, and then Brookins shot her in the head. Oh my god. So, very quickly, things were happening. Like, she pulls up, gets out of the car, Brookins comes out, like, she's barely even out of her car at this point. Like, she hasn't even made it around the house. He's at her, screaming at her, shoots her. The neighbor then observes Brookins kicking and stomping on Suzanne after he's already shot her and then shooting her one more time. What the fuck? Yeah. Kirkpatrick, who is outside at this point, ran back to his mother's house and while he was running, saw Sam running behind him. So her 15-year-old daughter. He ran into his mother's home and slammed the door, followed by another gunshot. He told his family to get down and attempted to call 911, but was unsuccessful. He threw the phone to his mother and asked her to call 911 while he kept checking the windows of her home and he saw Sam lying on the sidewalk between the two houses. Yeah. He left the home and went to the driveway and saw Brookins driving off in Suzanne's car. Three additional neighbors were later able to identify Brookins as the perpetrator. So this is happening in broad daylight. Like... 
not even trying to hide it. Like, he is just out there, wild in, just getting revenge. Oh, my God. That's insane. Yeah. Sheriffs were able to follow tire impressions from Suzanne's home to a place near some train tracks where Brookins parked his car. It was determined that he had parked his truck there earlier in the day and walked 17 minutes to Suzanne's home. So this man's had 17 minutes from his vehicle to her house to decide he was going to do this. So. Wow. Let that simmer. After the murder, Brookins drove Suzanne's car to his truck and then got into his truck and drove his truck to his parents' house. But he was immediately stopped in the driveway by the sheriff's department including Baldwin County Sheriff Bill Massey. Brookins threatened suicide, but Massey spent over an hour negotiating with him and talking to him about his son, because Brookins also had a son. I Se- Separate from... Yes, because him okay. and Suzanne had only been married for five years, and so this was from a previous relationship. Okay. Massey would later testify that he just wanted to arrest him without anyone getting hurt. Brookins finally caved and placed his pistol on the bed of his truck and allowed Massey to arrest him. Later, during questioning, Brookins asked Massey how Suzanne was doing. Massey didn't tell Brookins Suzanne was dead, but just told him that EMTs were working on her. Massey testified that the night of the murder was emotional for him because he was actually supposed to walk his daughter down the football field at GMC for senior night, but he wasn't able to make it. When sheriffs arrived at the scene of the crime, they found Suzanne's body lying in the driveway to her home and Sam's body in a fetal position on the sidewalk between her home and the neighbors. During the autopsy, Dr. Mike, Mark Kopenin found that Suzanne was shot three times, once in her right breast, once in her elbow, and once in the head. The fatal shot occurred as the bullet went from the back of her head and bounced around in her neck, slicing the carotid artery. Sam's autopsy also revealed that she had three gunshot wounds, two of which were fatal. One shot entered her right side just under her ribcage, traveled up and forward through her liver, lung, and the right atrium of her heart before going through the sternum and then through her left breast. The other wound, which Kopenin testified would have possibly been recoverable, went through the middle of her lower back and through her kidney and liver and into her right breast where it exited and re-entered before exiting her body again. The second fatal shot went through her right temple at close range due to the gunpowder abrasions present on on around on or around her wound, sorry. A firearms examiner was confident that she that the shot to Sam's skull was most likely around four to six inches from her head. (gasps) So he executed them. Right. Like, shot her mom initially in the head, so she's gone. But after that, continues to beat her dead body, basically. And then goes after her daughter, who, while she's lying on the ground in the fetal position, walks up to her and shoots her in the head from about four to six inches. That is so disturbing. Even though she was already fatally shot before that, he made sure that the job was done. Right. The bullets were determined to be from the thirty-eight revolver that Brookins surrendered to the police at his parents' home. This is the same revolver that he purchased from the former inmate's girlfriend. Mm. In October of 2007, almost exactly two years after murdering his wife and stepdaughter, Brian Dwayne Brookins' trial began. 
this is where it's going to get a little messy. Um, I couldn't find any of the doctor's names that are involved in this trial, so I'm just going to refer to them as psychiatrist, neuropsychiatrist, okay. those sorts of titles. Um, they won't ever come back. I'm just going to refer to them for their section of the trial and then move on to the next person. Okay. The prosecution was seeking the death penalty, while the defense was claiming Brookins was intellectually disabled. I said keep that in mind earlier about him literally planning this whole thing out, but we'll get there. Uh. (laughs) During the trial, the state called on Brookins' childhood psychologist and testified that his IQ was around 84 to 92 and was diagnosed with a learning disability due to his inability to retain information that was spoken to him. Even with his poor language skills, he was still operating at a low average level. His psychiatrist would add that during school, Brookins' problems were conducted, were conduct related and not necessarily related to intellectual or emotional factors. He added that Brookins was, quote, manipulative, unwilling to exert effort, unwilling to accept responsibility for his actions, defiant and oppositional, unquote. Hmm. So basically, he's not the brightest kid, but he's not an idiot. Right. He also doesn't show signs that he has a learning disability other than the fact that he has poor language skills. So he understands. And he's also defiant. So this also plays into... Well, and that's like, that goes also into poor listening skills. It's like, yeah, if you're not paying attention and actively listening, then... Right. And this goes into what his mother mentioned about him being aggressive and unwilling to accept responsibility. Like, you're not going to be a well-rounded individual if you just can't say, okay, yes, I made a mistake. Right. So this was his childhood psychologist that the state called on. The state would also call on a psychiatrist from Central State Hospital that gave Brookins the following diagnosis, including some indicating that he was malingering or feigning symptoms. Quote, panic disorder without agoraphobia, malingering of psychotic symptoms, malingering of disassociative symptoms, adjustment disorder, chronic with mixed anxiety and depressed mood, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, Predominantly hyperactive impulsive type, alcohol abuse by history, antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and borderline intellectual functioning, unquote. She testified that none of his personality disorders would, quote, render him incapable of understanding and making choices in the realm of criminal behavior, unquote. I know I just said a lot of things, so I'm going to kind (laughs) of break it down. So... Panic disorder without agoraphobia. That means that he may have panic attacks, but it's not related to people because agoraphobia, that's like you're afraid of being in public spaces, those sorts of things. So he has a panic disorder from what she could tell, but it wasn't related to public spaces and being around people. Malingering of psychotic symptoms and malingering of disassociative symptoms. So he's kind of faking these symptoms to make it seem like he has them. Um, I learned what malingering was from the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. (laughs) (laughs) Fun fact. Um, Adjustment disorder, chronic with mixed anxiety and depressed mood, Um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, so ADHD, and then um, alcohol abuse by history. So 
He has a history of alcohol abuse, which obviously wouldn't help any of his panic disorders. Right, any of his psychiatric... Right, anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, all those things. So, um, and then she also said that he may have antisocial personality disorder and borderline personality disorder. Uh, But, like I said, these wouldn't make him incapable of understanding his actions and his decision-making. Okay. She also had an IQ test completed on him by her colleagues as well and found his IQ to be around 72, but felt that in her 14 hours of speaking with him, it was probably around 80. Uh, This psychiatrist would continue to testify, quote, did not find Brookins to suffer from any deficits in adapted functioning resulting from any intellectual deficit. Instead, she found his adapted deficits in the areas of finances, health, and personal safety to have been the result of his antisocial personality disorder, unquote. So ultimately, his IQ didn't really play a factor in his decision-making. It just looks like he's antisocial, and so with that, he also has struggles with his finances, health, and personal safety. So he wasn't good with his money he drank and because he's a big dude like we'll share pictures of him but he's a big boy like he is heavy set kind of kind of looks like Paul Blart to be honest <laughs> like I know that's mean but he wasn't he's not a healthy guy or at least he wasn't okay um and then personal safety I mean he was stealing stuff he was constantly in and out of jail so obviously he had no concern over his personal safety and then he goes out and murders two people in broad daylight so like he did not care yeah very impulsive it seems like absolutely she would also testify that his previous diagnoses were based around his own inaccurate self-reporting so all of those symptoms or um his diagnosis from before that I mentioned, mm-hmm. most of those are from him telling her that's what he had. So it's Oh, not, so just like bullshit. Yeah. Like, so he, okay. it was never proven that he had any of those diagnoses. Uh, the defense now would bring up a woman who had been Brookins Learning Disabilities Resource Teacher from second and third grade. She only worked Dude, how him. did they, like, how did the second and third grade teachers remember him, like... I'm sorry, if you went to my second or third grade teacher, they would probably just, they'd probably be like, who? This man was 33 years old at the time of the murder. So you're telling Ah, me that things he did 25 years before have any effect on what he's doing now? Yeah, it seems like a cop-out. Especially related to school. I mean, I am not the same person I was even in my senior year of high school, and that was 10 years ago. Yeah. Anyway... So she had only worked with him two hours a day and described him as a normal boy and even testified that he showed progress and agreed with the school psychologist's findings. Not sure why the defense would even use her because she's literally agreeing with the state's witness. What, did she, like, pull out his old report cards? I, I don't even know. Like, her testimony it was just... It wasn't even necessary, and it didn't help his case at all. Like, this is all I have for her, is just that <laughs> she was there. She said that she worked with him for, like, two hours a day, and that he was a normal boy, and agreed with the school psychologist from before. So it's like, I, I don't know. I think they were just kind of searching for people, and that's all they could They get. just wanted butts in the seats. That's it. <laughs> Pretty much. 
the ne- the defense's next witness would be a psychologist that evaluated Brookins for 17 hours. He would testify that Brookins had a quote receptive language disorder and an expressive language disorder unquote. He would also testify that Brookins showed deficits in communication, daily living, and socialization. This psychologist stated that Brookins showed signs of having a brain injury at some point and tests were in line with people that have complex seizures. He also claimed to see evidence of dementia or a, quote, deteriorating brain, unquote. Finally, he testified that Brookins' IQ score had declined from 2001 to 2004, but that these scores would be interpreted as, quote, his being distractible, being confused, having poor memory, being bipolar and paranoid, or having been exaggerating some symptoms, unquote. So basically, Brookins was just an awkward guy and didn't know how to communicate, but obviously he can communicate well enough that he had multiple love interests, was married, and... Yeah, and I feel like there's so many people that are socially awkward. Like, I feel so awkward 90% of the time, and it's just something you have to work on. I mean, this guy was a mechanic, like, and he was doing great. Like, people said he was great at what he did, and... I mean, sure, you know, a job like that, you don't really have to communicate that much with people, but still, like, I don't know. It just seems like the defense is bringing up people that are just going to say he has issues, and I don't think they're exactly accurate. Um, The next witness from the defense was a neuropsychiatrist that testified it was unusual for a person's IQ score to decline the way Brookins did. He also agreed with the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, ADHD, bipolar disorder, and intermittent explosive disorder. This neuropsychiatrist also testified that Brookins showed signs of spina bifida and was upset with his mental health team for not taking note of this. This doctor testified, quote, Mr. Brookins has had many diagnoses. Okay. Add antisocial or psychopathy, bipolar, intermittent explosive disorder. What are the common themes of all of those? Impulse control problems, anger problems, mood control problems. Constantly doing the wrong thing in spite of ample opportunity to learn to do the right thing, especially given ample punishment such as all the incarcerations and his, you know, run-ins with the law. This is typical of someone with frontal lobe injury. They just don't get it, and they don't learn, and they keep doing the same wrong thing because their brain won't let them do the right thing, unquote. So basically, they're blaming all of his decision-making on a brain injury. However, they weren't able to find any sign of a brain injury when they did multiple scans on him. So Wow. It's just like, hey, you're acting this way because it kind of sounds like you have a brain injury, Yeah, but when we did that scan, we couldn't find the brain injury, so I don't know why you're acting this way, but we're just going to say it's because of a brain injury that doesn't exist. That's ridiculous. Yeah, so... (laughs) Solid defense. Yeah, so I don't know. It's just... I feel like it's, it's one of those cases where in most cases where somebody just kills somebody and they try to do the insanity plea, most of the time they're not insane for lack of a better term and he had the wherewithal to fake all these tests and fake all these diagnostics so it's like obviously that in and of itself should solidify the fact that he is somewhat lucid yeah and like he planned this like this wasn't just a i'm angry this day so this whole impulse control stuff that they're trying to say that he has it's like no he planned this 
Right. He, he was in jail for 21 days, sat there bitching and moaning to all of his inmates or fellow inmates that, you know, he was going to kill his wife, calling her, harassing her from jail, and then gets out and a week later murders her in broad daylight. Like, there's, there was plenty of time for him to think, stop what he was doing. So this whole, like, oh, it was impulsive. No, that was almost a month's worth of time between getting incarcerated to committing the crime. Yeah. So I'm, I don't buy it. And he had that gun for how many days? So he got the thirty eight revolver, like, shortly after getting out of jail. They didn't say exactly when, but it was sometime within that seven days of him being Okay. Out. So he, regardless, he still had, he had planned on getting the revol- revolver. He could have not got it. Like, he could have just, yeah, he had plenty of time to think about it. Yeah, there's there's plenty of time for him to stop and be like, okay, I'm not going to do this. And him, like, being at her house when she wasn't even there. So he just had, like, a lot of free time. Mm. Like, he was just at the house, like, taking shit. Like, he took her shotgun, which I thought was interesting because he didn't use it in the crime. He used the revolver. So, I don't know. I'm not buying it. So, at the trial, Brickens' brother would testify that he sometimes would lose his temper quicker than the average person and was impulsive, especially in regard to him getting angry or upset. Brickens' sister would agree to this and testify that he was always aggressive and sort of a bully. She also commented on how difficult it was for him in school in regard to his learning abilities. She continued by saying that the family knew something was wrong with him, but they didn't talk about it. So, unfortunately, kind of is like he had issues with the law because the system ultimately failed him or his parents failed him. I'm not trying to blame his parents, but if his sister's like, oh, yeah, we knew something was wrong with him, but we never said anything. Well, something could have... You gotta say something. Yeah, he could have been seeking therapy or going to anger management, maybe. I feel Especially like... Especially when they're younger, because what th- during those younger years, those are going to be the ones that really shape you as an adult. Right, and so it sounds like he kind of became a bully because it's one of those situations where you want to pick on people before you're picked on. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's It's sad. Like, I feel bad for him as a child and his situation before committing the murders and you know that's completely normal to feel bad for people because most serial killers out there had a shit childhood and it's okay Mm -hmm. to to feel sorry for them but i mean i'm glad we have programs in place now for people but people still aren't accepting it and getting their loved ones the help that they need right and you have to utilize those programs and i feel like walking on eggshells yeah. Tiptoeing around it, that's not going to do anything. It's just going to make it worse. Um, so in order to properly convey the verdict, the following is a direct quote from the court documents. On October 13, 2007, the jury found Brian Dwayne Brookins guilty on all counts. Two counts of malice murder, two counts of felony murder, aggravated stalking, cruelty to children in the third degree, and possession of a firearm by a convicted, by a convicted felon. Sorry. Later on October 16, 2007, the trial court vacated and sentenced Brookins to death for each of the two counts of malice murder and to consecutive terms of imprisonment of 10 years for the one count of aggravated stalking, 
one year for the one count of cruelty to children in the third degree, and five years for the one count of possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. So, his trial and everything, so he found out almost exactly two years after killing his wife and stepdaughter. It was two years and two days. So, kind of, uh, symbolic yeah it's it's interesting how that like the timing on that i don't know if that was intentional or if that was just when they can get into the courts but it's kind of interesting that it happened that way um on november 8th 2007 brookins filed a motion for a new trial which he amended on may 27th 2011 and which the trial court denied in an order filed on april 10th 2012 on June 6, 2012, the trial court filed an ordered grant, an order granting Brookins' motion for an out-of-time appeal, and Brookins then filed a notice of appeal on June 12, 2012. On November 13, 2013, Brookins filed a supplemental motion for a new trial or alternatively for reconsideration of the order denying the amended motion for a new trial, and the trial court denied that motion in an order filed (laughs) on June 25th, 2021. An appeal was docketed in this court on October 18th, 2021. However, on December 10th, 2021, so almost exactly a year ago, Mm -hmm. this court struck the appeal from its docket and remended the case in order to return jurisdiction to the trial court to consider matters that occurred after Brookins' filing of a notice of appeal. So now into this year. On January 5th, 2022, the trial court filed a reissued order denying Brookins' supplemental motion for a new trial or alternatively for reconsideration of the order denying the motion for a new trial. Upon this court's receiving the record of the remand proceedings, the case was redocketed to the term of this court beginning in April 2022 under the current case number, and Brookins filed a new notice of appeal on January 18th, 2022. The case was orally argued on May 17th, 2022, and on October 4th, 2022, the verdicts were upheld. Upon our review of the record and upon our consideration of Brookins' arguments regarding his alleged mental retardation and mental illness, I apologize, this is a direct quote, we conclude that the evidence presented in the guilt-slash-innocence phase was sufficient to authorize a rational trier of fact to find beyond a reasonable doubt that Brookins was guilty of the charges of which he was convicted and to decline to find that he was mentally retarded or mentally ill. Justice Charlie Bethel writes. Wow. Yeah, so after (laughs) all those appeals and all the years, the court is still just like, no, dude. You're guilty. You're guilty. You did it. You don't have a mental disability. You didn't have anything holding you back. Like, you are where you need to be. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So has he exhausted all of his appeals at this point? Um, I don't know, to be honest. I think he has because he's actually sentenced to death, um, sometime in May of next year. What? Yeah, so we'll see what happens then to see if he does have any more appeals or if they reduce his sentencing. I don't think they will because this is Georgia. Um, Mm. yeah. (laughs) Georgia's real close to Florida, so I don't really think they care. (laughs) No offense to Florida, but, you know, Florida man exists. 
Um, <laughs> so Brian Joanne Brookins took the life of a loving mother and her teenage daughter. From what I found, um, Suzanne and Sam were very, very close. Suzanne only had two children, so it was she spent most of her time with Sam. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Like That's devastating. Were, it really is, because they were just trying to get away from him, and in the process, they ended up getting murdered by someone who was just pissed off. That's really, um, really sad. So, he not only planned to murder them, but, like, he tried to get away with it by saying that, oh, I'm impulsive and all this stuff. No, sir, you planned it. Yeah, and he um, straight up told people. Yeah, from talking to fellow inmates to attempting to purchase a rifle on the day of their murders, I I truly believe that Brian Dwayne Brookins is where he's supposed to be. Okay, so, can I just point out real quick, he... This all started from him stealing four-wheelers. If he would have just stuck to that and served his little sentence, his 21-day sentence or whatever, for stealing the four-wheelers, he got out, okay? That's not that big of a deal. I mean, yeah, don't steal, don't steal four-wheelers. I'm not encouraging <laughs> anyone to do that. But he could have, like, he was done. He could have just gotten out and lived his life. And yeah, like that, you know, your wife ratted you out. Okay, well then maybe don't stay married to that person. I don't know. But now you went and committed these crimes, and now you're sentenced to death. That's way worse than a 21-day sentence for stealing four-wheelers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's bad enough to threaten her from jail, which I don't know. I don't know if they intervened that. Like, I don't know if he actually directly threatened her, but he was harassing her. So I don't know if the jail, like, cut him off and said you can't contact her anymore. But, I mean, there was an order in place that he wasn't allowed to contact her once he got out. And, you know, it just makes me sad that she was just trying to move on with her life and even live in her house. Like, it was their house together, sure. But still, like, it's just, it's hard. And I feel really, really, really bad for her family because her, I think it was a cousin of hers was in the sheriff's department that worked on the case. But yeah, and so, you know, I can only imagine what that must have been like for him and everything. So, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate and it's just another case of the system failing somebody. Well, and not only that, but he, if they, if they had like a no contact order and he violated that, why didn't they intervene in that? Why didn't they take him and be like, you're on probation you violated this no contact order or whatever it's called. I'm not 100% sure. Especially so quickly after he was released, they should have just put him right back in there. Right. And and that's the thing is that like numerous neighbors were like, oh yeah, we saw him. Oh yeah, he was there. And they called the sheriff's department. So it's like, why exactly? Why didn't they take him back into jail or at least, you know, have somebody outside her home? temporarily just to keep an eye on her because she was only with her parents for a few days and then she was back in her home so I feel like it's one of those things and we hear this a lot in true crime but it's so true and I don't think it can be said enough if you see something say something even if it's just even if it's you're gonna feel like a tattletale I seriously I call the cops on my neighbors when they're driving too fast in the neighborhood (laughs) 
Are you sure you're not like 87 years old and like just sitting at your front door every day? Sometimes my dog runs outside and it's really scary, but it's like, (laughs) like, even if you're that annoying person that's just like calling the cops constantly, it's, I'm, they're, they're still documenting it, you know? It's, it, it can't hurt you and it's just doing your part and it's doing diligence. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. Like, if there's if there's somebody driving erratically, I call the cops. Oh, I do too. If, if somebody's being suspicious or, like, they have their lights on, it's like, I'll flash my lights at you and try to get you to turn your lights on. But if you don't, it's like, oh, okay, something's going on. I so, saw someone on the cameras at work, like, take – they came into the parking lot and they dumped trash in our dumpster. And I, like, took a picture of their license plate because I was like, what if this is, like, something really illegal that they're throwing away? I don't know. Okay, we've just started this podcast and you're already just like, oh, what if they're throwing away a body? <laughs> but you know what? I I always assume the worst, you know? it's So today, actually, my mom called me, or I called her, actually, and she was like, you know, I'm starting to worry about your brother. He went off into the desert with his friend and he's supposed to be back home today and I haven't heard from him. And then she's like, we've tried calling him, but it just goes to voicemail. And so our immediate reaction is he's dead. <laughs> He's dead. When he's gone, he's dead. So then we're just, like, frantically calling him, trying to get a hold of the friend. The friend, we don't have his number, so we're messaging him on Facebook. Turns out my brother just didn't have service. But it was, like, really weird because when I did call him, it would ring twice, and then it would be this voice, and it would be, like, press hash to end. And so I would just hang up because I'm, like, that's not even what a voicemail sounds like. No. So, okay, yeah. <laughs> so this is this is how well I know you. So when we were driving back from the Apple store and we stopped to get dinner and we're sitting at dinner and neither of us have service and I was like, oh, Caitlin is going to text me. She's going to text me when she gets home so we can start recording. And both of us, our phones said SOS on it and we're like at the <laughs> restaurant and I was like, she's texting me and she thinks I'm dead. And then she's going to text AJ and AJ <laughs> isn't going to go through and then she's going to think that me and AJ died together because it like <laughs> snowed today and it's so. <laughs> I mean, well, that's pretty, pretty accurate. We're, ne- like, <laughs> we're nothing if not before. predictable. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, no, you just drive by my house. Yeah. Like, if I don't hear from somebody that I always talk to, it's like, okay, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. So, that's, I don't think it's a, a bad thing. <laughs> no, I don't think it's a bad thing either. I mean, we're probably a little bit paranoid, but I also think it's better to err on the side of caution than just to assume that everything is fine and dandy. Yeah, I don't trust anybody, so it's like... If anything suspicious is happening or if I can't, like, I couldn't get a hold of my husband for, like, four hours the other day, which was weird because he always calls me on my lunch and I was panicking. I was like, Robert, you better call me right now. Like, (laughs) you're dead. I don't know what's happening. And then he calls me, not even shortly after that, like, another hour goes by and he's like, I was in a work call. And I was like, I don't care. You could have texted me. (laughs) Yeah, we, we do the same thing. If I text AJ or he texts me and we like don't hear back from each other it's like where are you but we have each other's location so I'll just be like oh okay he's at Panda see I don't we don't have our locations turned on because um I kind of don't know how to do that but I'm sure it's really easy and I can probably figure it out I just don't do it but um we have like code words so we have like nicknames for each other that we would never call each other but if we're in a situation, we'll know to say those names. I'm not going to say it on here because I don't want somebody to come kidnap me. Dang um, it. <laughs> but, yeah, so if, like, we say that name to each other, we know something's up. Ugh. Like, it's immediately, like, go time. So, 
I wish uh, I knew. I just want to be more a part of your relationship. Oh, I'll tell you. I'll text it to you later. It's not a big deal. <laughs> Sweet. Okay. <laughs> you could probably already guess mine because, like, my name is Caitlin. I don't go by anything else. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, enough of us, like, just talking and bullshitting. Um, I guess we can just kind of go into, you know, future plans for the podcast and what things we have in the future. Um, we will be getting a Patreon just because we do both work full time and this is definitely starting out as a hobby for us, but we want to make sure we do things for our listeners. So having merch and having live streams and those sorts of things, like we want to be able to have that interaction and relationship with our listeners. So that's very exciting. Um, another thing is, is potentially starting a YouTube channel so you guys can not only hear us, but you get to see our beautiful faces. So if you're more of a visual person, you'll be able to see us as we tell you these awesome stories. Uh, that was sarcasm because they're not always awesome. And then we haven't decided on what we're going to call our one segment, but we would like to bring to you at least once a month a segment where we tell you the stupidest reasons people have gotten sentenced to time. Um, What was the one that you sent me (laughs) the other day? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I don't want to give too much away, but, uh, yeah, one woman got sentenced for being in possession of SpaghettiOs. So really riveting stuff that we're going to be talking about here. And um, I think... Another idea that we had is we're going to be doing um, a series called Sentenced After Dark, which, Caitlin, do you want to kind of talk about that? That one I'm very excited about because I love all things supernatural. Um, I don't consider myself a spooky bitch all the time. Like, I love Halloween, um, and I believe in ghosts and aliens and all that stuff. I don't want to do seances (laughs) or anything like that, but... We kind of want to tell you guys some ghost stories. So true crime and ghost stories go hand in hand because most places are haunted because a murder happened there. So that's kind of what Sentenced After Dark will be and that would be on the Patreon as well. So that will be one of the tiers. Um, I think it would be like tier three. And the tiers are going to have some fun names. We haven't decided on those yet either. Um, So lots of positive good things will happen on this on this podcast and we're very very excited like we're just two dumb blondes having fun (laughs) (laughs) living our living our lives over here you know and I um one other interesting thing that we might do is a series called unsentenced where we're going to kind of go through cases and Talk about people that were sentenced for something pretty horrific and then now they are walking free among us. And I think that that's going to be um, a pretty dark series too because I think we can find comfort in a lot of these cases knowing that these people have been sentenced and they're locked up, put away where they belong. Um, so we'll have more information on that too as we as we continue to grow this community and just kind of but also with unsentenced would be people that were potentially wrongfully convicted as well right um so for example like the betsy faria case um her husband was convicted of her murder 
and he got out and now Pam Hupp is awaiting trial. So, you know, I don't think we would talk about that case necessarily because it's still, it's still going on and it's still really upsetting. Um, because I mean, everybody that was involved in that case is still around and it's still active. Um, but something along the lines of that where, you know, somebody was behind bars for a murder that they truly did not commit, but then you are going to have people that did commit a murder and then they got out and we know it was them, but <laughs> the system right. doesn't think so. Our, our justice system is fairly flawed and I think that that's something we kind of want to shed some light on during this podcast. Um and so, with that being said, um, I know we touched briefly on it about this series where people are sentenced for funny things or stupid things. Maybe if you guys want to throw your ideas in the comments on our Instagram, um, if anyone has a good idea for a series title for that. So, if you guys want to communicate with us and see what's going on with us, you can follow us on Sentenced Pod on Instagram. And if you want to send us, you know, kind of like listener tales in a way where, you know, you tell us your true crime stories or any stories that you want us to cover or any ghost stories you want us to cover or any of your ghost stories, we're super nosy and want to hear about those things. <laughs> um, you can email us at sentencepod at gmail.com. We are working on the Facebook page as well as the Patreon and our website right now. So we will have more developments on that in the future. But for now, it's time for us to sign off and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for joining us. Bye.